I heard from your partner when you moved, you had a lot of oh, gadget no. yeah. lying around your apartment <laughs> and you're holding to it and she forced you to throw a couple of your monitors. I, I'm a hoarder. I've been ratted out. <laughs> yes, I've got a, a spaghetti drawer of cables, adapters, phones that no longer work. I've got it all. So why you keep them? Like if they no longer work, can you fix them? <laughs> because one day I hope to resurrect them. Maybe, maybe <laughs> I can get them to work again. So explain this to me as our uh, tick gadget guy. Yes. Why my home appliances come with a universal wall socket? I can connect him to the same yeah. socket. 240 volts. Well, all my electronics, all this gadget, comes with thousand different chargers. Why? Because it's planned obsolescence. They're engineering it to be different or to break way before you need it to. And that's kind of how they get you to run to the shop and buy more. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. A prison for your mind. Salam, everyone. My name is Manal Sharif. I'm a cybersecurity expert, and I worked my whole career to protect people's data from hackers, the bad guys. I'm also a women's rights activist. I use social media successfully to start the Women to Drive movement back home in Saudi Arabia. And I'm Reinhard Sosen. As a teacher, I saw how tech could light up a classroom. But there was a dark side that I've recently discovered. My friend Manal and I are on a podcasting journey to investigate the evils of big tech, educate people around the world, and inspire netizens just like you, young and old, towards a better digital future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Tech for Evil. Today, we explore the little-known world of planned obsolescence and its huge impact on the world around us. We will try to answer why our smart devices and electronics seem to break so easily. Why is it so hard to fix them once they are broken? And where does all that junk go when we replace them? I, thought, I hope not accumulating in your apartment. <laughs> We will tell you <laughs> the impact of this linear consumption model of take, make, use, discard on our society and our planet. And we will suggest ways where you can be part of the solution. So let's begin. So what is planned obsolescence? Basically, it's when a company designs products to deliberately fail and give them shorter lifespans. Hmm. Companies have four flavors of planned obsolescence to get you to chuck your old stuff away. Not Reinhardt, by the way. He keeps all his old stuff and buy new ones. First flavor is to make hardware that fails. The second way is to make devices difficult to repair and hard to upgrade. Third flavor is when they bake the obsolescence into the software. And their secret sauce cultural obsolescence. And before we dive in, I want to mention that we will mostly use examples from Apple, and there is a reason. Apple is the largest publicly traded company in the world, and it makes most of its profit from hardware. So if it seems we're picking on them in this episode, <laughs> it's actually because if they were to show leadership, the rest of the tech companies will follow. Yes. So let's dive into these four flavors of Planned obsolescence of tech. Reinhardt, to you. 
How many of your friends who has a smartphone has one with a cracked screen? I think me, that's me, just me. about everybody. Yeah, me included. <laughs> so, built-in hardware obsolescence means deliberately designing the thing, whatever it is, to fail before the end of its natural life. A great example is uh, lithium-ion batteries. They have an average lifespan of around two to three years, which is actually pretty good, but they are now sometimes glued into the device rather than screwed in. So, the whole device is virtually useless once the battery dies. It's not easy to get it out, uh, put a new one in and get more life out of the phone um, or the laptop, let's say. Lithium-ion batteries are also too dangerous to extract, actually, so they can't be recycled and they often end up in the trash. So... Have you, 20 years from now, from today, yes. when you got your first Nokia yes. with the battery, <laughs> and I came to you and I said, by the way, 20 years from today, this battery will be glued in. Would you believe me? I think you were crazy. <laughs> and now we just got used to them because they keep the sleek, yes. a beautiful design. They glue everything in. Computer printers are another great example of planned obsolescence in all its glory. You might be, you might not be aware that printers are actually very cheaply made. And if yours breaks, you'll spend more to fix it than just buying a new one. The average home printer has just been designed for a lifespan of five hours and four minutes total printing time. Oh my God, this explains yeah. a lot. Like I, I gave up on printers. <laughs> well, that's also because maybe every time you update your OS and the driver stops working, it's just it's an headache. infuriating headache. Now, on top of that, the ink cartridges inside these printers, they make the companies most of the profit. They sometimes have software that shows a low ink signal when there's still plenty of ink left in the cartridge. I knew it. Yeah. I've been through that. Like, there is ink and it's showing... I can't believe that. It usually anyway. comes right as you're about to print a resume or an assignment for class, yeah, right? Yeah, critical time. <laughs> well, this is no conspiracy theory with the printers. It's uh, actually an industry standard. And so much so that in actually in 2017, France fined HP, Canon, Brother, and Epson for selling printed cartridges that falsely notified yes! Viva customers. France. Yeah, Viva la France about being low on ink. So um, that was good. And it looks like France, as it happens, is a bit ahead of the game. They were the first country in the world to have consumer protection laws on their books against companies deliberately selling products that were it designed to universal. fail. Yeah. Wow. The second flavor we talked about, about how they make planned obsolescence of tech happen, is making it so difficult to repair or upgrade. Yes. Tech companies almost guarantee that you, Reinhardt, and the rest of us <laughs> can't repair the devices. And how they do that, they make repair manuals. They don't make it available for us, the repair manuals, except their authorized technicians mm. and repair centers. And they deliberately make spare parts expensive. They also do some cheeky things like using non-standard screws. Oh, and I'm yes. pretty sure everyone with iPhone and Mac, we've seen they, them. They, oh, and sealing devices with glue, like batteries, gluing them in. Sometimes even worse, they solder parts together mm. for no good reason. Yes. So it's virtually impossible to replace all these individual components with spare parts. And if you figure out how to repair it yourself, which I tried many times, <laughs> that voids your warranty. Yes. So good luck, Reinhardt, fixing all those gadgets around. Exactly. <laughs> hope. Yes. I believe in you. Avoiding <laughs> all my warranties <laughs> left, right, and center. Another design choice that created planned obsolescence is actually the lack of upgradability, 
upgradability. Oh. <laughs> and I remember Reinhardt, my first computer, I put the pieces together myself. Yes. Like I bought the case, Back I bought the, the motherboard, yeah. and I made sure yeah. that I have all these expansion slots just, there. You just needed one screwdriver to put it all together. And sometimes when you are rich enough, you can buy extra RAM and upgrade your laptop or your computer. Yes. Or maybe have an, have an extra battery when your laptop of battery course. dies. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore. Mm. For many people, the only way to improve their devices, their existing devices, is by just chucking mm. out the old one and buying a new one. So on that topic of out with the old and in with the new, one of the other flavors of planned obsolescence is the software failure. And what do we mean by software failure? The best way to explain it is, I think, the story of the iPhone 6. In 2017, people might remember that Apple deliberately yeah, programmed yes, yep. their OS upgrade to make older versions of iPhones slower. So this coincided, funnily enough, with the release of a new range of iPhone models. That's convenient, yeah. of course. Well, after a bit of bad press and independent research proving that Apple was throttling the performance on purpose of older phones, Apple tried to explain it away by claiming they didn't want to overload the batteries or the phone with the new OS, so that they had to they had to massively reduce the performance of what was once a perfectly good phone. Now, if you were one of the people who sued Apple for this, you can certainly brag about being reimbursed with a whopping $25 voucher for all your troubles after three years waiting for the courts. So these software updates, they're another planned obsolescence tactic, and it makes perfectly good things obsolete way before their time. So, you know, Reinhardt, they had to settle the, the court case. They couldn't yes. because they knew they won't win. They would lose so much money and they settled for $500 million. But it's such Ooh. a sad Pocket story, like $25. Yeah. yeah, Nothing. Yeah. Well, the reality is that the David and Goliath lawsuit here, they, that it accomplished nothing. And yeah. yeah, maybe there were people that had been screaming about Apple dabbling in planned obsolescence for years. And maybe they'd be satisfied, but... Apple didn't really face any true consequences and they weren't exposed as a perpetrator of planned obsolescence. And actually, on the contrary, some argued that Apple was in that mess because they supported older devices for far longer than their Android counterparts, let's say. So it's quite, a, yeah. it's quite complex. One of the flavors of planned obsolescence of tech is the psychological persuasion or actually pushing us into upgrading. Yes. Buying a new device. The formal fear of missing out. How many of your friends are just crazy about having the recent iPhone or the recent gadgets in the market? Oh, once Mia, some, some will camp outside an Apple shop the night before in a tent and freeze just I to said, get the I latest said, one. Because it's uh, the Mac cult yes. that created this loyalty and this crave for these new devices. So a newer iPhone equal best. Mm. So it's really forcing cultural obsolescence. In 2020, Apple released five new iPhones. Samsung released 15 new smartphones. In the same year, the top smartphones produced 1.38 billion smartphones wow. globally. And you can think, 1.3 billion smartphone in the market, 1.38 million smartphones out of the market and discarded. Mm. 2018, Apple launched the AirPod. Oh, yes. I hated it. It's the same <laughs> time they introduced this new iPhone. So when my the, my iPhone broke, I went to replace it 
it's just, it was so expensive anyway. And I went and I bought the new iPhone and it came without the headphone jack. And I was asking the salesperson, like, there was a mistake. I unwrapped the package. I was like, uh, the headphone jack is missing. And she said, no, no, they come this way. How about you buy AirPods? And I'm like, no, wow. I don't want to buy AirPods. Yeah. Because wireless headphones, they cause me headache. Ah, like it's okay, the, right. The, she offered me actually to buy a dongle. To use <laughs> oh, great, my, another dongle to add to the pile. The, the laptop that's under my desk now, the... So me and Reinhardt, we have the same design laptop. Reinhardt laptop is 2016, hmm. MacBook Pro 2016. Mine is 2017. Both of them have a faulty design in the display called FlexGate. Look it up. And it caused the screen to go, either go black or have black horizontal lines. Reinhardt was lucky enough. They called back his device. It was fixed for free. Mine had the same problem. I went to them and I said, it's the same faulty design. They said, we will not fix it. Pay $977. It's a 3000 Australian dollar device. Mm, yeah. They refused to fix it. I signed a petition. There are 1,500 people on change.org had the same problem I had. I went to all these Mac forums, everyone having the same problem. Apple still do want to recall those devices. Ask us to, to pay. I refuse to be bullied to pay the 977 Good for you. But the problem is I had to buy another device. I paid another $2,000. Not much option, really, is there? But the best part, you should see the shock in my face again. I opened the package and my device had one USB. One like, USB Why? port. Great. Who's the saddest who designs these laptops? <laughs> and they, they offered me a dongle. <laughs> oh, a dongle. Fantastic. Walk my look dongle. at you. Yeah. I'll walk with a dongle, but I won't walk around with AirPods. <laughs> There's a limit to everything, right? So, Reinhardt, I just, why can we tell the audience why tech companies mm. are doing this? Quite simply, profit. And there are a lack of regulations preventing planned obsolescence. So if we take that example with Apple, which makes most of its profit via hardware sales, in 2018, the AirPods, they were Apple's favorite, most... Yeah. yeah, well, they're not your, not just your favorite, but uh, they turned out to be Apple's most popular accessory product. 35 million units were sold worldwide. Oh. 60 million units were sold in 2019. And it's estimated that <laughs> Apple AirPods make up 60% of wireless headphones globally. So just think of this. Apple's entire wearables product range, the, the Apple Watch, AirPods, AirPods Pro, it's now well, bigger. Oh, we have Pro too. We have Pro, yes. Um, <laughs> no, well, never stop. Well, all of that, it's now bigger than 60% of the companies in the Fortune 500. And in 2020, Apple... Uh, this was the this was that seminal year. Apple tw in 2020, Apple hit that two trillion dollar market value, and it's the first publicly traded U.S. company to do that. And for perspective, if we wanted to equal Apple's market capitalization, we'd have to combine the net worth of the world's top 24 billionaires. Imagine wow. all those billionaires in the room together drinking Imagine, brandy yeah. and smoking Elon Musk cigars. And, a lot of and wearing AirPods. Yes. Yeah, all wearing AirPods. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, there are people who justify this planned obsolescence and, and waste. And they say this electronic consumerism, it's a big word for me to say, you it encourages. <laughs> it, it, I, by the way, I struggle with big words, so I just change them to simple short ones. <laughs> so, people, the economists who support such a business model, they say this encourages consistent long term company business growth. 
and also drives prices down and encourages innovation. They argue consumers get a cutting-edge product faster and cheaper, while the company makes money, creates jobs, and helps sustain the economy. Everybody wins, right? Mm. Not exactly. No. All right, so let's explain why that is. For one, on a basic level, it's deceptive. It is. Companies are falsely inflating the demand for a, a device, and that takes a toll on our wallets. Our personal and family finances, they're taking an unnecessary hit. One of these devices, a printer, a phone, a laptop, all of these things that we rely on for our studies or our work, they break long before it should. And then we have to wear that cost. And and second, it has devastating impacts on our planet and humans in the developing world. It requires the use of more raw materials to produce new products. That's not a secret. It takes fewer raw materials to make a dishwasher than the iPhone 6. Did you know that? Oh, no. (laughs) Let's look at cobalt as an example for Mm -hmm. the environmental impact and the human impact. Cobalt, you need it to make the lithium-ion batteries that we've been talking about in your smartphone and also in the electric cars. Half of the world's supply of cobalt comes from one country, the Congo. 40,000 children working in the cobalt mines. Mm. 20% of these children, they dug out the ground by hand. So it's unsafe for these Mm -hmm. children. And why we have child labor. Yeah, totally chaotic mining. Exactly. And and just just imagine that the iPhone that I'm having now, or the AirPod that you're wearing, it could have been touched by a child's hand. Mm. They were involved in making this smartphone. Today, and I'm happy for this, there is a lawsuit in the US against Apple. Google, Microsoft, Dell, and Tesla. And this lawsuit is accusing them of knowingly benefiting from and aiding the cruel and brutal use of young children in the Congo to mine cobalt. You know, Rahant, one of the problems that fossil fuel emissions are visible, Mm -hmm. it's very clear, you can see it, but with technology, a lot of people have this misconception that technology is clean, Mm -hmm. it has little pollution. Just to give example how much it costs the planet, to make a single smartphone, 40 to 80 kilograms of carbon dioxide is, is, wow. is released. Like It costs the planet 40 to 80 kilograms of carbon dioxide. Mm. It's the same as you drive your car from Sydney to Newcastle and coming back. That's 320 wow. kilometers of emission yeah, coming yeah. from this car. Yeah. That's equal to creating one smartphone. Yeah, that perception is definitely a problem. We don't necessarily always see our lovely clean iPhone that comes in a wonderful cardboard box as possibly having such a dirty history but that's unethical yeah and an unethical history sourcing yeah Yeah. that's not all so there is also this topic of the e-waste we wanted to raise and e-waste is all our electronics like phones household appliances etc a couple of years ago the united nations found that inside our e-waste is something like 10 billion dollars worth of gold platinum and other precious metals that we dumped so inside wow. all of that e-waste, there's all this precious materials that were thrown along with it. So ignoring the loss of these precious metals for a second, the environmental impact of our e-waste is everything from huge carbon emissions to the pollution of water and food. And if you're wondering how big the problem is, Americans throw away roughly half a million smartphones every day. 
And although e-waste is only 2% of US landfills, it's actually responsible for over 70% of all toxic waste. Okay, this is shocking. Yeah. Because you always look at your gadget electronics are something small. Yeah. You would never think it will cost 70% of all toxic waste. So what about those of us who recycle our phones and electronics? Like yeah. I recycle. Yeah. Yeah. We have bad news uh, for people that recycle their phones and, and hope to do some good by that. The majority of electronics, once they're discarded, they're not properly recycled. And once the precious metals are retrieved, the leftover materials, they tend to be incinerated. They're, they end up on the other side of the planet, dumped and in a landfill, illegally shipped, actually, sometimes from higher income countries to lower income countries. All those sexy Apple accessories we mentioned earlier that make Apple the richest company in the US, their lithium ion batteries are glued in. And so that means that extracting and recycling these batteries is pretty much impossible and it ends up in a landfill. So once this junk gets to the landfill, guess what happens? It starts leaking very dangerous chemicals like cobalt, lead, mercury. All of that ends up in the soil, the waterways. But worst of all, this is really sad. What we are now seeing from these toxins is that they are causing devastating birth defects, rarely seen anywhere else in the communities close to all this junk, such as in Africa and poorer parts of Latin America. Now, the pollution is growing, so those countries that we've been shipping our waste to are now refusing to accept shipment of Western waste. And I think this is fortunate because it has forced countries in Europe and North America and even here in Australia to rethink their national e-waste disposal programs. So, teacher, can you give us a history of planned obsolescence? Oh, yes. How Excellent. How did this all start and where did planned obsolescence come from originally? Yes. Time to take a step back and look at the history of planned obsolescence. Well, the ground zero of planned obsolescence is often believed to be what's known as the Phoebus Cartel. In the 1920s, light bulb manufacturers from all over the world came together to discuss the future of their industry. They put their heads together and realized that long-lasting light bulbs were discouraging repeat customers. Nicknamed for the Greek god of light, the Phoebus Cartel, as they came to be known, agreed to reduce the lifespan of the light bulb from 10,000 hours to 1,000 hours, industry-wide. No one would be allowed to make a longer-lasting light bulb to discourage competition. They had their engineers design their products to perform worse, replace long-lasting carbon filaments with tungsten, and voila, the light bulb of the future would deliberately fail after just 1,000 hours. The strategy worked and we bought more light bulbs. Turn to the Great Depression in the United States in the 30s. That saw unemployment rise and consumption fall. So planned obsolescence looked very appealing to companies struggling to survive. As a result, mass consumption of consumer goods came to be viewed as a bedrock of economic growth. It is an important part of what is called a linear growth model of take, make, use, discard. During the post-World War II economic boom, companies also realized they could coerce people into buying new products faster by making them appear outdated or unfashionable. 
people began buying things at an unprecedented rate. The model year is a great example of planned obsolescence and was ushered in by Alfred P. Sloan of General Motors around the same time that the Phoebus cartel was designing their infamous substandard light bulb. It proved to be a genius move. Consumers traded in their old cars for the newer model simply because it was new and shiny. In the 1930s, people used their cars for an average of about five years, but this dropped to an average of just two years by the 1950s, a mere 20 years later. In his autobiography, Sloan summed up the psychological manipulation behind planned obsolescence when he wrote, The changes in the new model should be so novel and attractive as to create demand and a certain amount of dissatisfaction with past models as compared with the new one. And this has become a staple strategy of big tech companies. Psychological manipulation behind planned obsolescence. I've heard this before, the psychological manipulation in the episode about targeted ads and how you change people yes. behavior. Yeah. This become a stable strategy for big tech companies today. Yes. So they learned from the Phoebus cartel. We are today facing a sobering reality of this risk due to climate crisis, to environmental crisis, people are waking up and fighting back. As an activist, I believe that we should never underestimate the power of the collective action against any of these urging problems, including the climate change. I want to mention a couple of activists. I call them my personal heroes uh, for this episode. My first hero is Martin Postma. She's a former journalist who wanted to support sustainability by encouraging her community to repair electronics instead of discarding them. She opened the Repair Cafe in Amsterdam, and she provided repair manuals and tools to fix gadgets, all the electronics. You can take yes. it to the cafe. And I know you like that it's in Amsterdam because you're your partner. Because <laughs> my missus is from, from the Netherlands, yes. <laughs> Martine she started a not-for-profit called Repair Cafe Foundation. And she started opening repair cafes all around the world. We have them even here in Sydney. So today there are 1,500 repair cafes globally. My other hero, his name is Carl Wins. And he has such a rebellious story that hit me close to, to home. So Kyle was still a college student. His Apple iBook, the name at that time, I didn't know there were iBook. Did you know the Old name was school. iBook? Yeah, it broke and he couldn't find service manuals online to fix it. The interesting thing about Kyle, he used to work as a technician for Apple. So he knew these service manuals existed. Wow. When he researched, he found that Apple threatens anyone who published them online for copyright reasons. Okay, Ugh. exactly. So out of his frustration... He turned that frustration into a positive thing. He actually wrote his own repair manual. Champion. And not only that, he posted it online <laughs> and for free. <laughs> so really this, I know, he's amazing. So this really small event changed the course of his entire life. So that manual Champion. will now grow into a whole movement. I fix it. If mm. you guys have something to fix, go to yeah, his website. Sure. And his community includes millions, he called them, tinkerers, technicians, and volunteers around the world. And I went to his profile and I love what he wrote there. He said, started this thing. I'm privileged to work with a global community of technicians that are fixing the world fixing one the world. gadget wow. at a time. You should join wow. them, Reinhardt. Awesome. 
Kyle, this is a shout out for you. Shout If out. you're listening, we admire you Lots beyond words. Thank you. Today, Kyle has taken his grassroots campaign for something very important that you need to know about. The right to repair movement. Yes. The right to repair movement. The right to repair movement wants to change legislation that forces manufacturers to provide access to repair knowledge and the tools to do the repairs. Yes. Yes. The movement has grown, thankfully, and it's taking hold all over the world. There are chapters in the United States, Europe, and even here in Australia, which is fantastic. Another of the champions of the right to repair movement is Nathan Proctor. He once said that we have a stuff problem. We do. Our huh. problem goes beyond smartphones. We use more than we need and more than we can sustain. Repair is a critical part to moving to a more circular economy. And you would have guessed it. Big tech companies like Apple, Google, Microsoft, uh, Tesla are spending millions on lobbyists to squash the right to repair laws. They're arguing that, well, they're worried about third parties having access to sensitive information and they claim it puts the safety and security of consumers at risk. Now, when Apple representatives fought a right to repair bill in Nebraska in 2017, they told the lawmakers there that it would turn the state into a mecca for hackers. Recently, legal experts from across the globe drafted a historic law that defines ecocide, intended to be adopted by the International Criminal Court, to, that's in Lahai, to prosecute those corporates that commit horrific offenses against the environment. So ecocide is to the planet what genocide is to people. Exactly. The law defines ecocide as a lawful or wanton act committed with knowledge that there is likelihood of severe and widespread or long-term damage to the environment being caused by those acts. Wow. I just want to say this definition helps to emphasize that the security of our planet must be guaranteed on an international scale. We have been waiting for this law for so long. When my friend in Geneva, he's a human rights lawyer, he told me that they are drafting this law to there. I couldn't believe it. He told me last year. And ironically, when it comes to waste, it's always the taxpayer who pays for recycling and waste management. So today, yes. the government used taxpayer money to do waste management. For so long, environmental activists campaigned to shift this cost to the real offenders. Who are they? They are the companies that deliberately create all this waste. And it makes sense because whether it's from the excess packaging, um, disposable products, the one-time plastic use, or even products with toxins that are designed to have shorter lifespan and hard to repair or recycle, those people who create so much waste should pay the price yes, for recycling this waste. Yes. And, and policymakers seem to listen. Like Europe recently, they are setting, actually, Europe always setting the example for advanced regulations. Uh, we talked about it with the GDPR, and now they are also their regulations supporting sustainability. So the European Commission is adopting a circular economy plan to face the climate crisis and reduce emission. And this is confirming that the ethical alternative to the linear model that gave rise to planned obsolescence. So this is the circular model will be the alternative to the linear model. The European Commissioner for the Environment, and I'll try to read his name. Wow, if, uh, you're in you for a tough, tough job it. there. Virginius <laughs> Sinkovicius. 
yes, this this person, he stated that the linear growth model of take, make, use, discard has reached its limit. Yes. A few months ago, I was listening to the news. The EU actually are forcing tick makers to standardize the charging cables. Woohoo! Finally. <laughs> so if you are an iPhone user dating someone with Android, <laughs> you will have you will need to take one charger with you next time oh, you travel together. Oh, how romantic! <laughs> and I'll have to throw away my drawer full of stuff now. Is that right? I'll, yes, I won't be able to keep all those charger. power chargers. I love this. I love this law. I'm like, who thought of this? <laughs> Thank <you>. brilliant. <laughs> Uh, so after that wonderful news, let's move to the U.S. Because so far, 27 states there, they've introduced uh, legislation supporting the right to repair. And in July, President Joe Biden, big news, signed an executive order for the right to repair movement, supporting it. The executive order will essentially force all manufacturers to provide repair manuals for their products. And the order includes consumer electronics companies, which is unprecedented. It's huge. So, the big tech companies that have always blocked independent repair shops from accessing parts and manuals will now be forced to share information with consumers and the professional repairers. The right to repair movement has even attracted the attention of big tech icons like Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple. He said that the open access to technology that he had in the 70s is precisely the reason we have the Apple computer today. Wozniak called out big tech companies by saying, companies inhibit the right to repair because it gives the companies power, control over everything. It's time to start doing the right things. I love his quote. Coming back here home to our beautiful Australia, repair cafes are popular here. And in total, we have over 49 repair cafes, two of them here in Sydney. More on the way. Uh, the right to repair movement has built up a momentum as well. And soon the Australian Productivity Commission will be presenting a report to the government for taking action on the right to repair. Recently, Choice, an Australian consumer advocacy group, has called for penalties under the Australian consumer law for companies that mislead customers about their repair rights and other remedies available under existing law. They've published an article of five ways to take control of your consumer rights, and we will be posting the link to this article in our blog. It's important to understand this call for penalties in context. And to do that, I want to explain that in 2021, Microsoft's shareholders delivered a resolution calling for improved company policies around right to repair, mostly for the sake of the environment. And they called out the hypocrisy in Microsoft's public stance on reducing climate emissions while actively preventing consumers from extending the lifespans of their devices. Here is an excerpt from the shareholder resolution that I'll read. Microsoft is a corporate leader in pledging to take substantial action to reduce climate emissions, yet our company actively restricts consumer access to device repairability, undermining our sustainability commitments by failing to recognize a fundamental principle of electronics sustainability, that overall device environmental impact is determined by the length of its useful lifetime. What we think policy makers can do to help is the following. Regulators can mandate manufacturers to offer buyback schemes and return systems for old devices. Regulators can impose export limits 
on manufacturers too, where the quantity of goods that can be exported should be directly proportional to the amount of e-waste the company has recycled or reused. Very clever. Seems fair to me, yeah. And that seems fair yes. to me. Governments could give some form of tax break or rebate for companies that effectively process old equipment. So those three things combined would go a long way. But you too, our listeners, you have the power and should exercise your rights as consumers. And here's the great part, you can make a difference. Start by raising awareness. Learn about what's going on and expose the practices and the horrendous impact, particularly those on the planet and developing countries. Resist the urge to upgrade. If you can, go another year uh, without upgrading your device. Go on, try it. Repair, repair, repair. We mentioned iFixit quite a few times. We have repair cafes here in Sydney. There's many of them around the world. iFixit, for example, have thousands of repair manuals for free on their website. And you can purchase parts for your devices there as well. They actually also carry smartphone batteries and repair kits, so that's perfect. Uh, Find your nearest repair cafe, please, or even better, start your own in your local town. You can apply on their website. It's repaircafe.org, and they will help you. Reach out to them. Start a conversation in your workplace about how your business handles e-waste. Try to find ethical e-waste partner that will ensure the recovery of the raw materials without damaging the environment. Get a battery recycling box going in your family. And if you're not sure how to recycle e-waste, talk to your local council. They will have a lot of information that will help you and your your kids. Also, make sure that your local council are managing e-waste ethically. Another way we can all help is by becoming advocates for a repairability index. It can be similar to an energy rating on an appliance, but instead it can be a score out of 10 that tells us, the buyers, how easy the device is to repair. France has already put a repairability index in place and it's displayed next to the price tag of an electronic good. Let's band together and call for the adoption of a similar system here in Australia. Lastly, write to your local politicians and urge action around the right to repair today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please don't forget to tell your friends and family about our podcast. If you have feedback or ideas for new episodes, we would love to hear back from you. And remember, this is a collective problem that needs our collective action. You've been listening to Tech for Evil. If you'd like to know more, please visit our website at tech number four evil.com that's tech number four evil.com thank you and see you next time